Have you tried changing your health year on year, resolving that this year things are going to be different, but nothing seems to change? Oftentimes, when things are not changing, we are following many wellness myths and not looking at the full picture, including our nutrition, recovery, stress management, leaving out mind-body connection. I want to introduce you to Wellness Redefined, a new podcast from Refillion Media that's here to dispel all your myths about wellness and fitness while sharing stories of how we redefine what it means to be healthy. On each episode, we'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who will share their own unique wellness journey and offer their perspective. I am your host, Tamika Rochester, founder and CEO of Harlem Cycle, a premier wellness space in New York City with a focus on indoor cycling. I've been an advocate for wellness since as early as I can remember. So if this sounds like something that could help change your life, go ahead and pause the show you're listening to and subscribe to Wellness Redefined on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. I am your co-host, Nadia Butt, and I am joined with your other co-host, Rob Hadley. Hey, Rob. Hey, Nadia. How you doing this week? Oh, I'm, I'm fantastic. It's, uh, yeah. it's summer. Everything's the sun's out. Yes. Ready to ha- having a good time. How about you? I love that. Well, so I, this is part of the, you know, how I always ask you a question. I'm, I'm going to just talk about something for a minute and then would love to get your, your reaction or response. Of course. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the United States this week. Well, in general, <laughs> the last six, seven, eight years <laughs> around the globe, right? Like there's, there's mass shootings, there's murders, the economy, inflation, like the uncertainty of thing. This is really depressing right now, <laughs> but stick with me. See, yeah. I can't, they can't see my face, but I'm like, <laughs> I'm like yeah, oh no. It's, it's overwhelming and exhausting, but I was reminded this past weekend by my sister and listening to a podcast with Brene Brown and Karen Waldron who are both, Brene Brown is a professor, Karen Wallern is an activist and attorney. And they reminded me that in order for us to continue kind of fighting or resisting and fighting that good fight, we have to experience joy mm-hmm. because joy is the only thing that can really refuel us and, and keep, up, keep us going. So what joy have you experienced recently that re-energizes <laughs> you? Well, I think... I think so. There's some uh, there were some difficulties, but I just got back from a trip earlier this summer to Brazil uh, to see my wife's family. Uh-huh. So we there were you know it's, it's obviously a very long trip, and, and we had some very interesting things happen to us on that trip. But just seeing family, uh, connecting with people you haven't been able to, you know, obviously through the pandemic, we weren't able to go down and visit and, and see people for a couple of years. And so yeah. I think that that's just being with family and friends and. And uh, obviously, I live here in Utah, so being outside and and, and uh, getting out and, and, and seeing our beautiful landscape that we have here is really important. Yes. How about you? That's awesome. Um, I wasn't able to go to Brazil, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, I what refuels me is just very similar to you, like nature. So went to the beach a few times, cookouts at family and friends' house, really refueling with friends. I also just need to... Even though I'm an extrovert, I'm an ambivert. And what I realize about myself is that I really need to re-energize sometimes by just disconnecting. So I had to like stop some feeds to my phone yeah. of the news and just, you know, maybe like watch some TV, <laughs> just like hang out. Reality um, TV or so, non-reality? 
Not oh, reality, not reality always. TV. Bravo TV <laughs> is the place where it's at. It's my jam. So yes. Yeah, so thank you for asking. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I hope other people are able to also kind of disconnect and just experience joy because we we have a we lot to fight it. for. We really deserve it. <laughs> we, we deserve, deserve it. it. You know, we talk about it. it. Yeah, I'm, I'm being entitled about my 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 <laughs> my rest and relaxation this summer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, we so, all deserve so it. Let's, so, what do we got on? Yeah, yeah what do we got on deck gears. this let's, week? Uh, I, I'm really excited. I'm always excited to talk to our guests, but uh, particularly today, we are arriving at a point in our series as we've been. You know, it's a it's a it's a quite a journey we've been on. So we're going to a place where companies are starting to go from startups to more mature organizations that are starting to grow very fast. And we have a guest that is somewhat of an expert in understanding and dealing with the challenges of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging that come with that growth, especially in fast-growing tech companies. So joining us today on Inclusive Collective is Maggie Roquet. Maggie is relentlessly curious about how our environments and communities affect the way we see ourselves and others. She's a diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity leader and practitioner who values progress over perfection. She currently serves as the director of diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity, what they call DIBI, which will be very difficult as we have this conversation for me to remember, (laughs) keep saying, uh, at Zapier, the global leader in easy business automation. At Zapier, Maggie builds, drives, and iterates on strategy related to Dibby in its people, product, and public good. Maggie Roquet, welcome to Inclusive Collective. Thank you so much for being with us. Of course. Thank, thank you, Rob. Happy to be here. Hi, Maggie. So glad to have you with us. We invited you on today to really get your insight as a diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging practitioner and someone who has this like vast experience and expertise working with rapidly growing companies, particularly ones like Zapier. And so is that how you say it, Zapier? Yeah, like Zapier makes you happier. Zapier, ooh, I like that. Zapier makes you happier. Could you set the stage for us and share some of the, um, like the environments or context of what you've done, you know, in terms of DE&I work and what you do now in your current role at Zapier? Yeah, happy to. Uh, So my... Dibby work is how I'm going to say it, but we can use whatever acronym, acronyms <laughs> we want in this space. That's going to throw me off the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> use what feels comfortable to okay. you. My background started, honestly, from the point of curiosity. I'm multiracial. And so growing up, and this might date me just a little bit, growing up, like that wasn't an identity that, that was valid and seen in my communities. Like monoracial focus, mm-hmm. you are one race, was really the way that we interpreted identity. Mm-hmm. And I hated that. Um, And so the core of my career has always been, well, how do we create space for people who shift between boxes or whose identities don't mesh well within one singular definition? And the, the secret answer here is nobody actually fits well within a singular definition. And so my work initially was actually in higher education in researching how our environments affect how we build community, how we talk about ourselves, how that relates to self-efficacy and performances, like, and even down to graduation rates. Mm-hmm. And I eventually made the shift into tech because it's a fast moving environment. And I, I wanted to, I got really good at building individual solutions to systemic problems in higher education. I didn't have the access to change systemic problems. Mm. And tech opened a door for me to look at systemic issues within a micro environment of a company and to really get to the heart of what is going on that's creating 
barriers that's creating uh, missed opportunities or, or gaps in pay and experience and opportunity for people who are on the margins or people who are underrepresented. And at Zapier, the work that I'm doing is really looking at how do we take an excellent culture that we've built with really strong values, with really great global representation and diverse representation across many different demographics. And we still have room to improve within that, but how do we take what we've done really well and make it durable so that as we scale and as we bring in more hiring managers, more leaders, uh, more opinions, perspectives, difference, that the core values and the core ways that we operate that promote systemic equity mm -hmm. and sense of belonging, that those stay really firm within who we are. That's great. Uh, Maggie, so we'll, we'll come back to, we'll have a lot of questions about what you're doing currently at Zapier. I think if you can, uh, I'm just interested in, again in that you, you're moving backward, right? So as you think about, and, and I know you've worked with organizations at various sizes, not just in tech, right? So 500 people, 1,000 people, 2,500 people, organizations. What are the, what are the, challenges those the first thing that comes to mind in terms of the challenges that you faced <laughs> or the biggest thing that you faced at each stage or each of those different size levels uh you know so from uh small medium to, to a little bit larger what are, what are the things that uh stand out in your mind as challenges yeah uh, you know, we're I just think diving is... right in, by the way. Give me the answer. I want the answer. I love it. This is perfect. Um, I let's see. I mean, like, I think the biggest challenge that is consistent across the board, but expresses itself in different ways is like buy in from the executive team. Mm. And and frankly, like I'm going to push practitioners in the Dibby field to get really clear on what buy in actually means, because there's people who care. Mm -hmm. There's people who get it, who've like done the internalized work around it or who have been experienced enough in different businesses to see it work well. And then there's people who uh, I think are risk adverse, but know that like this is something that the, the cultural tides of how we work and what we need from our employers are changing and that they just have to be in on it. And, and I think that's where it, that's a huge challenge in implementing Dibby is understanding who you have on your executive team, how they see Dibby. Mm -hmm what their concerns and, and are around it and what kind of risks they see is associated with it. And I think that changes based on the size and scope of the company. Like the work that I do right now, which is at Zapier, we're, we're over 500, mm -hmm. growing rapidly, but still in a pretty small state, is around how we balance founder involvement, right? Like this is a company that they've grown from like the, from the tiny team of three into a company of over 500. So when we talk about culture, we're talking about very specific actions, values, ideals that the executive team has held mm -hmm. and continues to hold. So how you balance that, how you critique it, how you grow around it and find voice um, is a huge barrier around that buy-in where you nurture that and help folks evolve, but where you also honor some of the ties and some of the, the emotional connections that the executive team has to how they've built their company. Very different from a company of 2,500 where you may have a leader who says yes, but it's never going to be on their OKR landscape. It's never going to be on their priorities. The way that you build accountability is specifically through tying their bonus or their performance rating to it. And so understanding what is motivating somebody to either engage or disengage with Dibby, I think is the biggest barrier that we face in, in terms of how we make this sustainable, impactful work and not just performative action. If you think about the last two years in, I've seen organizations as small as, you know, 25 people, startups that are rapidly, you know, obviously rapidly growing. 
and maybe their intentions are really positive in this area, want to either bring in dedicated staff or, organiz- or parts of the organization or really build out that function. How do you think about the organizational structure to support those ambitions? Is it is there a time when it's too early that, you know, just based on your experience, um, any thoughts there? Yeah. You know, I don't think I've worked in a young enough startup or an early enough startup to tell you if I've seen anything too early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what I can say is like, the, the advice I would give here is hire, if you're going to think about this early, hire talent that's already thinking about diversity early. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're thinking about talent acquisition, if you decide you need a recruiter, hire somebody who values like diversity and pipeline and who can talk to you about the funnel makeup and who's going to push you to think about how you build a bench of, of network and contacts that can increase diversity at senior leadership, because that's, that's the, like historically a pain point we face in tech. Mm-hmm. Don't hire a Divi person. If you can hire somebody who's an expert and specialized in a role that you really need in order for the company to sustain itself. Um, I think at some point you get to, a number of employees where you need somebody to hold a shared vision to connect the dots and to help forecast for the future because that that head of talent isn't going to be able to think about what should Dibby be in three years. Um, they need to think about like what's our talent map in three years. And I think that's that's the indicator and marker for when it's time to look for a Dibby leader. Did you want to follow up on that, Rob? No, no, I, I really like that. I think that uh, you know hire for that talent function yet look for capabilities around Dibby that can support that talent, right? As you build out that team, right? And I think that's a really smart way to look at it. And, and I'm curious around how, what's your experience been in working with tech companies as well as just startup companies in general around leaders or individual contributors having some form of behavioral competency associated with DEIB? Is that something that you've seen? What are your observations in terms of, is there something, is there, are there behavioral competencies that are related to DE and IB? Um, And if so, are folks using them? Are they coached on them? Are there like feedback and coaching sessions happening around them? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think I've seen a lot of different techniques for teaching people behavioral competencies. I've seen less around that drive accountability and even less around measuring if it's successful. Mm. Some of the things like that I've done that I won't ever do again, to be quite frank, that tries to like push at behavioral competencies is like generic bias trainings, Mm -hmm. especially if it's for an entire company. I have pulled an entire company together for bias trainings and I will never, ever do that again. (laughs) Tell me why, like why? Because there's so much bias training happening right now, right? Like that, that's, that's kind of like a tagline for a lot of DEI practitioners. Yeah. You know, I think bias is so individually driven. It requires a level of conceptually accepting that we are biased, that you're not going to get that in a room of 400 people, period. But mm-hmm. let's say I did. Let's say I magically got 400 people who all work for the same company to agree with me and wholeheartedly believe that they are biased. The work that I need to do to think about how that applies to my, my job or where it's going to show up looks really different across different audiences. The way I experience that within my field is different. If I'm a manager, it's different. If I'm a senior leader or an executive in the company, it's wildly different. And so when I pull people together for a generic bias training, we learn a lot about 
what it can be or where it shows up. I get a lot of head nods. I get a lot of complacency. <laughs> Two weeks later, we're right back to where we were, yeah. right? And so I really prefer to think about driving behavioral change through norms and through actions. Instead of teaching everybody what kind of biases exist in the hiring process, how do I set our recruiters up as partners that are meant to and are rewarded for challenging hiring managers on decisions they think might have bias? Mm -hmm. How do I ask managers to invite dissent and difference? How do I encourage our executive team to reward feedback that they receive, whether it's in an engagement survey, an individual contributor shares it, or somebody on their direct team? Um, and how do I make that really, really applicable? That's not really training, right? Like that's sometimes that's resource building. Sometimes it's partnership and being a, a valued or safe space to talk through different ideas. Right. Sometimes it's systemic where you're looking at policies. So I really believe in bias, but I'm never, ever pulling a company together to learn about it together. <laughs> yeah, right on. Can I bring you everywhere I go now? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I, I think let me just make sure I'm I'm hearing it right because I I agree with everything you said that bias tr the training right so unconscious bias uh, as a, as a concept was never supposed to be the answer to anything right like just be having leaders or people in an organization understand that bias exists and that there's an accepting that it exists you know opens the door to be able to actually change behaviors and build. Uh, equity into some of the people, processes, and programs, and, and procedures in that organization. So, is 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 that some of the some of the your thoughts there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think the way I would summarize it is, I try to do like twenty percent education. Mm -hmm. What is the what is the bare bones? You have to know this to be able to do something well. Eighty percent action. So it's enough for me to say. You're going to be biased anytime you make a choice it's subjective and you're going to put in other like other criteria and feelings and emotions that you can recognize and that you can't recognize mm -hmm. the end there you go bias training the rest Done. of it i want to talk about when like when do you find yourself making decisions and if you know that you can't control all of the ways to make it a sound decision on your own who do you need to invite in to those decisions that's something that anybody can go take and replicate and work with, mm -hmm. right? And so, but I don't need to do a training for like a, a two minute summary of go seek diverse opinions and perspectives when you make choices. I, but I think that's where we really start to dig into it with like hiring managers or with executive leadership, people managers, um, is recognizing all the different ways that we make choices throughout a day, all the different ways that we invite bias in intentionally or unintentionally and just picking a couple of different habits and behaviors that we're committing to that we know will help us move through it and invite different outcomes. So, you know, when I think of like leaders or uh, DEIB committee members, sometimes they get so caught up in what they call themselves. Like maybe they call themselves the DNI committee or the DEIB committee or the inclusion team but they get so caught up in it that it almost impedes them in moving forward. And I'm so curious if you've seen that and what your thoughts are around that. I've definitely I've never, seen it. Because I've also never heard Dibby before. Like that's the first and I'm kind of loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, what's funny. This is the one team that I didn't title. So at my last company, I titled it diversity and belonging at the company before that it was inclusion and diversity. 
you know, I think we're far enough in in the game in terms of this as a field that like my heart craves standardization and consistency because <laughs> I think it's kindness. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, like language is important, words are powerful. But if we're if we're all at the same point of having strong intentions and we're all trying to create organizational change, the last thing we need to do is spend time in a vacuum talking about how we would order the words or what words are most important. I have a couple of things that I use as like barometers for how I think about it, which is I see diversity as an outcome. I see belonging as an outcome. I think if you have equitable systems and pro like in practices, you will bring and invite more diversity into a space. If you are effective and inclusive behavior, people will feel like they belong. I think it's important to have some kind of logic to it. And and the, like there's a lot of different ways to approach it. But I, I typically like kick people in the butt a little bit of if we're having this conversation with ourselves, then we're missing an opportunity to have it with somebody who doesn't even understand what diversity is in the first place. Sure. And I think it's safer, it's less risky and less scary to have that conversation with a bunch of people that you know care about the same thing and where you can get spun up on what are the words we want to use and identify as. Okay. And so most of the time I have found that when we're stuck in that cycle, it's because there's a bigger risk to breaking out of that group. And that's the one that's worth addressing. I appreciate that. Thank you for, for that input. Maggie, The uh, you talked about uh, <laughs> the mistake that you made of bringing or something that you said you would never do again in terms of bringing 400 people into a room and doing training. Any other things that you won't ever do again, uh, having been through this a couple of times? Oh, I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> we have time. We can add it to the show notes, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the biggest one that I actually, uh, no, see, I'm like, no, I have so many. One, not defining culture and not taking the time to define culture the reality is culture is going to exist whether or not Dibby exists as its own team. Um, and a lot of times with startups or like high growth uh, companies, that culture is constantly changing because you're bringing, you, by the end of the year, you have as many new people as you do veterans, right? Um, and so the way that we talk about culture, the layers, the baggage, the perceptions, experiences, it changes. So. I don't like to belabor on culture, but I like to get really, really clear from the start of when I am with a company of what is our culture? What are our defining values? What are, like, what are our make or breaks when it comes to how we think about Dibby? Are we gonna be political? Are we not gonna be political? Are we gonna take stances? Like when would we take feedback that changes a decision that's already been made? Really stress testing and pressure testing it and then building out our definition and strategy around it. I've done it the reverse before. It's painful, it's hard. It leaves a lot of people with mixed, missed expectations, which leads me into my <laughs> second, I'm not gonna ghostwrite public facing statements about what a company believes in. I just can't guarantee that within any of that, that, I, that every single person who represents or interacts with our product or our company agrees with it. And so unfortunately, the bar for how companies show up in public stances, the highest that it really can get is performative allyship. And I want more for my company than performative allyship. Like I want us to think about how we're serving our communities, how we show it through actions. I want us to feel it internally and to focus on how we take care of our team members. So ghostwriting is, in my eyes, a poor use of time. And public stances ultimately let us all down because it it makes it more inconsistent in how we live our culture. It sets unrealistic standards, 
or it takes the platform away from the voices that really matter in those spaces. That's great. I love it. That's great. Maggie, can I, can I do a follow-up on the first point of things that you won't do again? And that is, yeah. and, <laughs> and then, and that's, and that's about the, the culture. So one thing I hadn't even thought about was the fact that at the size of company that you are now, you have to make those decisions about whether you're going to be political as part of your culture. And so was that decided when you went to Sabir or did you, were you part of that discussion? And then if, if so, how did you, you don't have to tell us what Zapier's stances are political on political stances. issues, <laughs> unless you really want to get into that. But how did you think about, how did you uh, have that discussion and how do you, as a company, think about it as a DEI leader, how did you facilitate that conversation? You know, I think more than a decision, uh, something that I co-created with my CEO and my CPO, uh, chief people officer, was guiding principles on how we're going to make those kinds of tough decisions. Mm -hmm. Who are we? Who are we not? Uh, what's important to us? And how do we talk about what's important to us? Uh, so I would say, honestly, it's an ongoing and evolving conversation. I don't think there's ever going to be a fixed decision. And sometimes there's outliers where it's just, it is either dramatic or so close to our people that it doesn't matter what our principles are. And, and typically the nice thing there is the right path forward is really clear and harmonious. So within that, I think what I would advise and what I appreciate about uh, being able to co-create was just principles on how we operate together and on how we work through social and cultural pain. Mm -hmm. Maggie, let's go ahead and kind of wrap up. We do like to ask our certain founders this one question, but I I'm going to actually switch gears and ask this question in a, in a different way. What advice related to DEIB would you give to a founder who might not have someone like you, someone that is um, a Dibby advisor, practitioner, counselor in their organization, maybe because they don't have the funds or they don't have the resources? What, what advice would you give to those founders? First, your leaders have to be responsible to Dibby. Uh, and you can do that through hiring people who are skilled within this already and who have experience. You can invest in your talent that you already have by putting, making sure that they are upskilling in these areas. There's all sorts of different opportunities that are low cost, no cost, high cost for this. Um, do not send them through Dibby practitioner training. Send them through webinars, coaching, workshops that help them understand how it applies to their field and their expertise already. That's number one. Number two is if you have a volunteer inclusion council, you either need to invest in it and hire a leader or you need to potentially disband it. I think one of the toughest things culturally for people to understand is how Dibby can exist where a company will like operationalize it for free, but won't invest in it. Mm -hmm. It is a fast way to create burnout. It is a fast way to over index underrepresented talent in your business. And if you're going to have people using their voice to talk about diversity, have it in your product conversations. Don't have it in a volunteer think tank that you're not rewarding, but I will push. You should reward this. This is like, this is one of your best mechanisms for creating sustainable culture and retention and engagement over time. And you need that when you're in high growth. 
your veterans become so important, especially when new folks start to outnumber them because they are where you find historical information. They are the mainstays of your culture. They are the mentors and coaches and visionaries and thought leaders in your business. You have to invest in your talent early um, and you have to incentivize them to stay. So when it comes to a point where you have to think about how do we strategically operationalize Dibby, my last piece of advice is don't just hire a chief diversity officer. Think about what kind of leader you really need. Mm. Um, it might be more of a consultant based. I really identify and affiliate as a practitioner because I like to be on the ground, getting my hands dirty, doing it. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit of a jack of all trades when it comes to people and HR things because I've, I've had to help with enough things and be a little bit of a triage that that I'm in it and can have a conversation and spot treat it as necessary. Mm -hmm. So think about what kind of skill set you want and hire for that. And that may be a chief diversity officer, that may be a director, that might be a program manager. Mm -hmm. um, I think really get clear on what role they're going to serve in the business. But if it's accountability buddy, then go back to your initial point of you need to work on your internal talent. This person is not an accountability buddy. And Maggie, what kind of resources would you recommend to our audience? Uh, it could be to, again, those those founders or to just anyone uh, that's listening and interested uh, in Dibby and, and some of the things that you find very useful. Yeah, there's all sorts of good stuff. My favorite is Neural Leadership Institute. I think they make great webinars. They have great research and content. What I love and what I think they hit at a sweet spot for is connecting high-level theory and concepts around Dibby to work. So I always am hungry for, and I typically have to kind of map it out with my resources, a puzzle of like, I can get somebody who's really great at talking about bias, and then I have to map it with organizational change management to think about how we create that resource. So Neural Leadership Institute does that for you. They have a great I, SCARF model too for coaching. SCARF is great. Yeah. I love SCARF. I don't know why I'm forgetting all the other acronyms with them, but I, I would say that's a really great jumping point, especially if you have somebody who's aspiring to get into this field, or if you have somebody who has signed up to help build out what it could be, but isn't quite sure how to build a framework around it. Great. Right. Maggie Roquet, thank you so much. It's been brilliant talking to you today. Uh, I loved it. So much great insight. And I uh, hope you'll come back and talk to us again uh, at some point in the yes. future. Yes, I would be happy to. Hey folks, welcome back. We are at the Con Reflections part of the podcast. Um, I'm very much appreciative to Maggie, especially her background and expertise in the, the Dibby field, particularly when she talked about her identity growing up. She she mentioned she felt like not seen. And I feel like that's something I, I could I, I can relate to just being a child of immigrants and um, feeling like you're the only one in the environment. So I really appreciate her talking um, briefly about that. But you love um, Maggie. You were, I you were... <laughs> really enjoyed speaking with her. She she just had a lot of great things to say. And uh, I also just appreciate anyone who pushes the theory of DEIB into practice because sure. it is hard to do. It's untangling this like really gross mess. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, for, for sure, especially in the environment. And so, yeah, so so Maggie is out here in Utah with me, so I get to hang out with her. So sorry, oh, so you can yes, be, you, coming, can be, you can be jealous. I'm totally coming for coffee, a hundred percent when I when I get to Utah. Yeah, and Maggie's, you know, Maggie and I, she's so knowledgeable. She's on the front lines 
of a lot of the issues that we talk about often on this show. And so we love getting Maggie's perspective, find it invaluable. Um, we did have this moment where I just wanted to get it on the record that I am not the world's foremost defender of unconscious bias training as we, as I, as I kind of dove in and, and, uh, and sounded like I was, you know, may have sounded like I was defending it a little bit. So unconscious bias training certainly has taken a lot of heat, takes a lot of shots recently. Everyone mm-hmm. in the field really has some negative uh, thoughts on uh, unconscious bias training. Aparna Ray, uh, who, who we both know, had, had either posted or in her newsletter that if you do unconscious bias training, that you might as well set that money on fire mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and that you, that whatever you spent on that training. So, you know, I just have a little bit more nuanced opinion and that I think that's a concept that's very real and important. And, sure. and, and you just have to know why you're applying it, right? Like why it exists and why it's an important concept. So, sure. so when organizations give their employees a one or two hour training and then cross their fingers and hope that behavior will change, yeah. Meaningfully, Send them to the island of training. Yeah, that's, that's not going to yeah. work, right? And it's not going to be effective. Yeah. And I would argue it's not going to be effective for any behavior change or, or any kind of training, right? So, um, And I also see the point that unconscious bias training can be harmful if it actually introduces stereotypes to people that they weren't necessarily effect, uh, oh, sure. uh, yeah. uh, aware of before. And some studies have found that it may actually cause people to express their biases more openly because it's, uh, it normalizes bias uh, in some ways, and certainly if it's not done properly. So I do think, and this is where you know you and I have some experience in this, that it's an important mm-hmm. concept in organizational change. For me, because it gets it can get leaders to understand one, that bias exists, right? And I think that that's something that that not everyone holds as universally true in, in, yeah, in their conception right. of the world. So one, bias exists. And two, that as humans, we're not always in control of our actions, right? That we're not always in control of what, we, of what we're doing. That our minds and our decision-making processes are flawed. And I think that's powerful because if we can get leaders, as this is our first step to get leaders to understand that their gut feel isn't always reliable, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's powerful because if I can get them to feel, you know, maybe that's not always reliable, then I can start to have that database discussion, what I always want to get to, and start developing strategy and introducing other tax tactics that are, you know, based on data, right? So if a leader has an understanding that they might not be perfect, along with the data to show that they're how bias can be manifest in, in their hiring or promotions or performance ratings or whatever, then we can start to engage and start to dig in and, and talk to people and leaders about how their own behaviors can have a negative impact, right? And so, right. so yeah. that's, so I 100% agree. Um, it certainly seems like the one stop unconscious bias training, one hour mm-hmm. for the entire org is a relic of the past. It should be probably stopped forever in every organization. But I think if it's surgically used and used in combination and conjunction with a data-based approach and with all kinds of other support, then I think it's an important concept and it can be a part of an effective overall learning strategy. That's me, and I'm not the learning expert. So I'm just interested (laughs) in in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I mean, you know, the last three years specifically unconscious implicit bias training has become the thing right it's it's usually the first training typically tends to be the first thing that people will say we need um in any organization in any sort of community Mm -hmm. and i'm a big believer of awareness building so you you know there's a lot of foundational things that 
need to be brought to people's attention to be able to become aware mm-hmm. of you know language or stere- how stereotypes are formed how the brain works right and so in that regard a, an unconscious bias workshop is never a bad idea right if you're if you're really doing it for awareness building what i have issues with is thinking that that is the sole solution to changing mindsets and um, building behaviors or yep. changing behaviors, right? Like you can't, I joke, but like, you know, my friend Amanda Carroll, who's really um, big in the L&D world, um, in leadership development world, you can't send, she always says you can't send someone to the island of training and then expect them to come back with behaviors changed overnight. It's just, that's just not realistic. Sure. And so in, that's why I'm a big, we both are big believers of embedding DEI practices and behaviors into everything. You have to infuse it into other curriculum, into everyday interactions and practices. You have to be able to practice it. And so a workshop or a training is a great way to build awareness, but also practice. It should be a safe environment where you're able to kind of role play situations or uh, you know, maybe it's um, you can, you know, simulate something where uh, you know, something was a uh, something was said offensively. And so how would you react as a leader or a colleague? Those are great workshops and trainings and, and things to build awareness. But again, to be able to bring that back to the workplace in everyday kind of practi- practical um, setting, you have to start practicing. And that requires a psychologically safe environment. That requires uh, a foundation of trust mm-hmm. and that really requires um well a lot of things but three things coaching and feedback to be able to be given so yes love 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 what you're saying and um i don't encourage anyone to stop doing d uh, to stop doing unconscious bias awareness but i would absolutely encourage people to question what the intention is and how will you continue to leverage the learning and the growing after that particular workshop. Awesome. Well, thank you for letting me spout off on your field of expertise for a couple of minutes there. I love it. No, I'm happy, <laughs> happy. I thank you for your insight. Um, well, that's a wrap for this week's episode of Inclusive Collective. Actually, it's 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 one of the last episodes of season one. So the penultimate. Um, it is, yes. Yeah. So thank you to Maggie Roque of Zapier. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. Uh, Better yet, share it with your friends. We are on LinkedIn now, so uh, follow us on LinkedIn and uh, feel free to subscribe there. If you have feedback for us, email us at info at We are starting to think about season two. Well, we have been thinking about season two, so we'd love to hear from you in terms of the things that you're looking to have us engage in. Check us out on Instagram. Inclusive Collective is produced by Refilion Media. Thank you for joining us. I'm Nadia Butt. And I'm Rob Hadley. Be well, and we will see you next week.